This audio production is presented by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church in Ocala, Florida. For more resources, visit us online at gspcocala.com. It's from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. May his word give us life. Thank you, Nikki. Got to be honest, sometimes when Mike says somebody's going to come and read the scripture and then he says my name and I'm going to come and preach, I think, please say somebody else's name. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, uh, we come to hear from you. Uh, We come hungry for your word. Uh, We come longing to hear you speak over us to proclaim your grace and mercy rules our hearts. Uh, God, we come because we need our hearts and minds to be set aright to be transformed to the truth of your gospel as opposed to all the false gospels that we believe, all the other ways in which uh, we try and satisfy our souls. Uh, Father, now by the power of your spirit, proclaim your word over our hearts, set us under your grace so that we might dwell as your people. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, One of my favorite Bible verses is Genesis 3-9. Genesis 3-9. 
Genesis 3-9 is not a super popular one when it comes to memory verses. Uh, the portion of it that I love most is a question. Where are you? Uh, Genesis 3-9 is the first words we hear from God after Adam and Eve sin. It is God proving himself and showing himself how he responds to sinful humans. He doesn't stand far off and fling thunderbolts from heaven, right? He doesn't come and hunt us down in anger. But while we are playing hide and seek, like a dad sneaking into the room, knowing exactly where you are, is willing to play along a little and say, where are you? To draw us out, to draw us in, so that he can show himself. So where are you this morning? I don't know what it is that makes you get up on a Sunday morning and come here, right? For some of you, it was early to get here, right? You, you, you could have slept in a little bit more than you did, right? I have this really weird benefit in life. I get paid to show up. I do. And so I, I say that somewhat jokingly, but also I don't, I don't have to sit here and wonder, am I going to go to church today? Well, I get paid to show up, so I keep showing up. But you, you actually get to wrestle with your motivations every Sunday morning. You get to wonder, what, what is it that's going to get me up and decide to put on the clothes that I'm going to put on or not put on the clothes that I'm not going to put on and, and to brush my teeth, comb my hair, and you go through all that to come through those doors to see these people. What is it that moves you? For some of you, you probably are moved just primarily because you're supposed to. You grew up in a house where you do what you're supposed to do. And this was something that you learned probably through joy, probably because you met Jesus and your heart was filled with joy of salvation. And after a couple of decades of it, you just know you're supposed to. Some of you do it because your week goes better when you go to church. It makes you feel better about yourself. It makes you happy. Maybe not at this church, but somewhere. Some of you show up because you, you want to learn some of you show up because you love to sing. Some of you show up because no matter what goes on up here, you get to see each other. And all those can be good things. The truth of what we are here for is not about us, though. It is an almighty, holy, and righteous God who has come to us. Again, he doesn't sit off at a distance and say, bow down. But a holy, good, righteous God comes to us and says, this is who I am. Will you know me? Will you bow down before me? Because that is the right response. Not, not a get down, but if you see who he is, the right and good best place to be is to fall down and worship before him. That God sees our sin, 
our rejection of him, our anger against him, our violation of everything he made us to be, that God sees us and comes after us. The book of Galatians is written to a group of people who have heard of that God, who have bowed down and worshiped a God of all grace and mercy. And after meeting him and seeing that grace and being melted by the goodness of a God who left heaven and came to earth so that they might be redeemed, they then turned away from that grace and went after another way of trying to prove that they were worthy of it. They went after another system by which they could, quote, maintain being in relationship with God. And Paul writes this letter to say, you fools, why would you dare have a God of all grace who comes to find you when you don't deserve it and then try and twist him into a God where you have a system by which you appease him? And as he's been doing that, he has to teach. He has to go back and show this is how he's been all along. So last week he brought up Abraham. And this week he has to go back again to Abraham to keep helping us see that this is who God has been all along. And there was this whole thing of Moses and the law that really, it confused us. And it confuses us still. I don't know if you've ever watched stories where characters are misunderstood. But we misunderstand God. We see what he's doing and we, we twist it in our own image and we've done that with the law. So Paul, in addressing our hearts, says in verse 15, let me give you a human example, brothers. He says, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now to keep the great pace we're going to get through all these verses, we're going to stop on covenant for a bit. One of the key understandings of how God works and how his scripture is told to us must be seen through the word covenant. That God relates to his people via covenant. God is a covenantal God. And what that means is, is that the, the, uh, when, we, when I was in college, uh, when a guy and a girl started hanging out a lot, eventually uh, you'd find out if they had the DTR. Anybody ever have a DTR? It's where you go from being friends and hanging out to then you have to sit down and say, what is this relationship? Are we dating or not? Right? Uh, one of my fraternity brothers asked me one day, said, hey, what's going on with you and Sweet? Which was my girlfriend's last name. Uh, and I said, we're dating. And I saw her like an hour later and said, so I, I told Dave we're dating. Is that cool? <laughs> that was our DTR. Now we had a more substantial one called a marriage. Um, the covenant is how God defines the relationship. He tells you the setting of it. He is covenantal. The way we see the covenant start most clearly is in Genesis 12 when God, again, we talked about this last week, pagan idol-worshiping Abram, off picking his nose in Ur, not caring about God, almighty, glorious, holy God says, oh, Abram, I want to bless you. 
I want to make you and your childless old wife a people, a nation. I want to give you a land where you will shine the glory of who I am and the nations will be blessed because of you. It's quite a wish, quite a kindness, quite a blessing. What did Abram do? Exactly, nothing. He did nothing. And then he sinned a lot. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Fast forward to chapter 15. And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God cuts a covenant with Abram. Right? He comes to Abram and says, I want to make this relationship covenantal and secure. I have made my promise to you. Now we're setting the terms of it. The terms of it are my covenant. So Abram, get it together. We're going to make a covenant. And he tells Abram, if you've read this before and you don't know the setting of covenant, you're like, this is weird. If you did this in your backyard now, you'd get arrested, right? Abram, I want you to go get a few different animals. I want you to cut them in half and separate them. All right, that's, that's enough right there, right? Separate them so that there's a pathway through each half of the animals. Now, what is going on there is that is a way of making a covenant, of ratifying a covenant, right? Now we have lawyers and signatures. This is the cool way to do it, right? He says, cut it, cut those animals, lay them out. And the idea is, and the idea that Abram would have been operating on is, me and God, we're going to go through those animals, and as we walk through them, we will make a public declaration to one another and to everybody else. If I break the promise, do what has been done to these animals to me. And God, because this is how he operates, makes Abram fall asleep. Because Abram's not going to take this on himself. And in a dream, God shows up in the form of a smoking pot and passes through the cut animals by himself. Right? It's amazing, right? Some of you are like, all right. Somebody said smoking pot. Other than that, I don't know what's going on. What's going on there, right? In all honesty, for centuries, the church struggled with understanding this. It's taken archaeology to understand this better as we've gotten further away from this environment. What's going on there is instead of God and Abram walking through and having this covenant together, where if one of them breaks it, the, the, the curse of the covenant falls on them. What God does is he says, I am taking both the promise and the curse on me. I am promising to give my blessing. And when you break it, it will fall on me, not you. Because, where are you? Because I am a God of all grace who doesn't require you to get it right before I pour my blessing on you. I long to be gracious to you. And so God made a covenant with Abram. And it was ratified. Skip down to verse 17. Paul says, this is what I mean. And anytime Paul says that, you're like, hallelujah. And then he starts talking, you're like, oh, you didn't really clarify all that much. 
He says, what I mean is this, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, and so as to make the promise void. What's he saying here is this. He says, you have Abram, and God in his gracious covenant that he gives to Abram, and he takes the, the, the curses on himself, and it's all of grace. 430 years later, for those of you who aren't historical scholars, is when Moses and the law show up. And when Mount Sinai, Moses goes up and God gives him the law and gives him the Mosaic system by which God's people and his relationship will be governed for a time. When that law came, it did not go back to Abram and said, yep, no more grace. Now you're walking through. It didn't go and poke Abram and say, wake up, wake up. You got to go with the pot here because we're together. on." No. The law cannot, as a later act, come and change what was ratified in the covenant. Now, that's really confusing for us because we hear the law and we think, oh, no, no, no. That, that told us what we're supposed to do. That told us how we actually maintain this blessing. No. He says it can't do that. He says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abram by a promise. He says you can't change the rules. Right? This is one of the things you love about backyard sports. At least my older brothers did. Anytime I started winning, they just changed the rules. <laughs> oh, you just scored on my goal. <laughs> How am I supposed to win? You can't win. Right? That's what my childhood was, was like. But you know this. You can't change the rules. When you make the covenant, it is what, what governs it. You can't go back and say, oh, no, no, there are some rules that, that I want to add in there that you got to know. When it comes by promise, it stays by promise. Now, this law, let me clarify a little bit. When Paul is, is talking about the law, he's, he's talking about the whole Mosaic system that governed the people of God from the time of Moses to the time of Christ. That system looked like this. Imagine me, regular old Israelite Joe, sin. I do a sin. I commit some transgression. I have to go and sacrifice I have to go make some kind of offering. Why? So that by my sacrifice, by my abiding by the standard and the rules, I can be set right again so that I can worship. So that I can have this right relationship with God, this right circumstance. And God gave us those standards and gave those laws so that why? Why? Right, Paul asked the question you're longing to hear, right? Why the law? Verse 19, why was the law given? If the law wasn't a way of saying, here, this is how you maintain and, can, and continue to have the covenant promises. He says, why was it given? It was given, it was added because of transgressions. Again, Paul answers a question and confuses us a little bit more. A transgression is when a line is clearly drawn and you cross it, right? 
what he's saying is the law came to clarify this line so that we would begin to understand what a transgression actually is. When I was in high school, I would go out and sometimes my parents would say, don't stay out too late. Can do. <laughs> 3 a.m. is not too late for me. Other times they would say, be home at 11. Rarely made that one. But if I showed up at 11.01, we were clear. I had transgressed the law. If they say not too late, I can come back however I want and feel like I'm all right because they didn't clarify the law. God, in giving the law, sets up a line and says, this is the line by which if you cross it, you are transgressing my law. Not just talking about the systematic nature in which our hearts work that is sin, but also the behaviors and actions that we take that are specific transgressions. If you will, uh, flip to Romans 7. If Galatians has been moving too fast and, and, and uh, without enough clarification, just go read Romans. And he takes longer to pull out a lot of these ideas. But in Romans 7, in Romans 7, verse 7, this is what he says. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring, me, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is what he's saying. He's saying God gave us the law so that you would actually be revealed in how sinful you really are. All right. If my parents said, don't come home too late, and I showed up at 3 a.m., I didn't violate their words, but did I violate my relationship with them? Oh, yeah. You bet. But if they say 11 and I show up at 11.02, I have clearly violated both their words and the relationship. The language theologians have used for a long time is that the law was given to be a mirror so that when you are held up against the law, what you see is I don't actually match up. It reveals your failings. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, I didn't know what it was to covet, but now that you make a law about it, boy, do I do that a lot. It is clear that I am covetous. So that the law of the Old Testament is meant to give us a way in which we see that we are transgressing. Not, it was not given, and Paul has been really clear, it was not given. So that you would have some rungs on the ladder by which you attain to God. Many of us approach rules that way, right? Some of us thought that was what elementary school was. Give me a rule, I follow it, and you love me. That is not how God works. He did not give law so that we would have a rule to attain to, but instead he gave it to reveal, to show us who we really are. And, right, some of us uh, fall too far on the, uh, the law is just there to show us how bad we are and forget the law is also there to show us how good he is. 
right? Part of seeing that we are not holy like God is that it reveals how holy and good he is and what it would take for us to be able to come back into that relationship with him. Again, that whole system of sin, sacrifice, worship, sin, sacrifice, worship, sin, sacrifice, worship, over and over and over and over and over and over again was revealing to God's people that there, there, there is a pathway back and you cannot walk it. Because the holiness of who I am is not anything you're going to attain. But the relationship, right? This is why God gave the law was to say, this is how you get back in, into relationship with me so that we might be together. But he gave it for a time, right? This is one of the more confusing aspects of it. It was added, verse 19, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. The fact that that system was meant to have a terminus, right? When the offspring came, who was the offspring? When Christ came, Christ did not come and just try and measure up to the law, but Christ came with a righteousness above the law so that he did fulfill the law, but he also did not need the law to have righteousness because he was already in fellowship with God. So that if you will, Christ almost broke the law, right? Don't play too much with my words, right? I don't mean violate the law, the law, and I don't mean break it and destroy it like Bo Jackson with a bat, right? But he did come and say, the law doesn't work against me because I have righteousness and right standing before God. And remember Paul in this Paul is trying to help the people of Galatia see the absolute inferiority of trying to keep the Mosaic system compared to faith. So that he makes what is one of the more debated verses in all of Scripture. He says, The promise was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Calvin a few hundred years ago, said there was at least 250 different interpretations of this. I don't know if this is 251 or one of the other ones, but what is clearly happening is Paul is saying, don't you see that the Mosaic system was inferior to the way in which God had already related via promise? It needed an intermediary. It needed Moses to bring you as opposed to the God who came to Abram. The God who came to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? The God who came to us as Christ. Right? We don't need an intermediary. In the old system, you need one. In this system, you need none because your high priest is your God. So why would you go back to it? Why would you go back He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Right? What do we do with the law? Is it, is it against the, if God says I work by promise, does that mean the law came and, and almost violated the promise? He says, no, 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 no. 
Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He's pointing at this picture of a guardian as a, as a pedagogos, right? as a tutor. Right? The image would have been clear to the people in Galatia. It says the law worked as the guy that would have to follow children to and from school. Right? This is what this guardian was. This was his role back then. Wealthy families, when they sent their kid to be tutored, there was the teacher, and then there was the guardian. you imagine having this when you were in school? Somebody paid by your parents to walk with you, to make sure you showed up on time, to make sure you paid attention during class, and to tell your parents what you did and did not do when you got home. Sound like a great day? On my way into work this morning, the headlights behind me look kind of like a sheriff's car. I drove differently. He says, the law operated as a guardian, watching over, giving you the parameters, reminding you that you're stepping outside of the ways of God. This is, this is how we walk in the ways of God. He says, now the guardian is gone. Instead of being uh, one who lives under the weight and burden of somebody constantly saying, hey, you failed. You didn't measure up. Actually, you got to go make that right now. That's a sacrifice. You can't talk to him otherwise. Instead, you now have Christ who has removed the guardian so that you might have access to God. Again, the context of this matters so much. The purpose that Paul is going into is not, legalist friends, hear me. The purpose of this letter is not to tell you how to relate to the law. It is to tell you how God relates to you. The law thing will get figured out. We're going we're gonna to get there. But first and foremost, instead of coming up and figuring out, well, what do I do? It's not about what you do. It's not about the law you keep. God, instead of coming and saying, follow my rules, has come and said, I've made a way that we can be restored. When he says, where are you? He doesn't say, and this is how you get back. He says, I have made it so that here I am. It's why he goes into that we are baptized into Christ, right? The, the Judaizers, the, these people in Galatia that Paul is arguing against have come and said, follow the Old Testament Mosaic law chiefly. You must be circumcised. If you're not Jewish, you've got you've to be circumcised. And Paul, just with this nice sleight of hand says, and so you were baptized into Christ, Baptism over circumcision is so much more beautiful. Instead of blood and atonement, it is water that washes because no more blood must be shed. The system that has you go from sin to sacrifice to worship is gone so that now you are washed clean and all it is is worship. 
Because you've been baptized, right? Circumcision is so restrictive because it is for the Jewish male. But now in baptism, Jew or Greek or slave or free, male and female, all receive the welcome sign that they are in Christ. They are in the offspring. They are heirs of the promise. Not because of a law, but by faith. That's the beauty of it. You can either, A, rest in it. Or you can try and prove yourself. You could say, I I think I can earn that. I'll take that and and I'll get better, God. The invitation of the gospel is to rest in Christ by faith. Mike sometimes really makes me angry because he, he puts this together and it does all my work for me, but he doesn't have to follow the text. He just gets to tell you the gospel. If we go back to the beginning, it's just that we would behold him, that you would see him. Right, uh, Galatians, we will keep doing this. It is all about the legalistic heart, the heart that says, if I follow God's rules, I can be right with him. And it's about taking the gospel to that. And it's all about the licentious heart, that heart that says, I don't need to worry about the law and I don't need to worry about anything. I am free. And it takes that heart to the gospel. And the biggest problem with both of those hearts is that both of them are worried about themselves. Both of them are worried about me instead of seeing him. Hear God's invitation and call, where are you? I'm coming for you. I am here at your access. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, let my heart believe that. And by the power of your spirit, let each and every one of us have faith in your grace and mercy, not in our abilities, not in uh, our striving, not in our freedom, but in you. Father, be our hope in life and death. In Christ's name, amen.